Amen. If you'll please take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 40. That is where we're going to be together today. In the first half of Isaiah, God took His people to court and He judged them for their wickedness and for their sinful, rebellious hearts. And His sentence was exile from the promised land and the destruction of their cities by the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now, during Isaiah's lifetime, he saw Assyria come and completely sweep away the northern kingdom of Israel and replace them with foreigners living in the land who didn't know and didn't follow God. And Isaiah pointed to this tragedy in the northern kingdom as a warning to the people of Judah, to the southern kingdom, that they would suffer a similar fate unless they turned from their evil ways and began to be faithful once again to the covenant with God. He predicted that Babylon would destroy Jerusalem, would devastate its temple, and take away the people into exile for generations. But Isaiah was not all doom and gloom. So in the midst of these words of judgment, we see sprinkled these whispers of hope there in the first half of Isaiah. Last week we talked about some of that, the idea of the two cities that Jerusalem was created and called by God to be this faithful bride, this holy city of Zion. But because of their idolatry, because of these horrific sins that they were committing, they had become an unholy city of sin. They'd become like an adulterous wife. And that's why God would bring His judgment on them. Not to utterly destroy them, but to purge them of their wickedness. And so God, though He would bring this judgment, though they would be taken away into exile, God promised that He wouldn't destroy them entirely. There would be a remnant. And so the kingdom of Israel being cut down for the moment, this sprout, this holy seed from the line of David would someday spring forth from the stump of Israel. And it's this hopeful prophecy of future redemption that the second half of Isaiah focuses on. The prophet now is speaking as someone who has lived through the exile. He's on the other side. And now he's proclaiming that their captivity is over and their sins have been atoned for. And so now God is going to fulfill His promise to return the people to Jerusalem. And and this this long-awaited, coming, prophesied descendant of David, this king in the line of David, this anointed one of God, this Messiah would come and a new Jerusalem would rise from the ashes of the old and this Messiah King will draw all nations to Himself and He will not only reestablish Jerusalem but the very kingdom of God and all of creation. So Isaiah 1 that we looked at last week is a good introduction to that first half of the book focusing on judgment, this idea of the old Jerusalem and the whispers of hope for a new Jerusalem. And so Isaiah chapter 40 is a good introduction to this second half of Isaiah, where those whispers of hope become joyous shouts proclaiming forgiveness and redemption and renewal. Imagine for a moment with me, if you will, that you are a Jew living in Babylon. And maybe you're old enough that you remember the exile. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar came in and laid waste to Jerusalem and and forced you from your homes and you had to make that long march to Babylon. Maybe you're old enough to remember that. Maybe you were born during the exile and you've known nothing but life as a pariah in Babylonian society. 
And maybe you've heard all of the grand stories of the promised land that flowed with milk and honey, the glories of Jerusalem and its temple. But either way, you're probably wondering if God has forgotten you. Has He forsaken His people? Is God guilty of neglect? Or maybe God just isn't as powerful as the Babylonian gods. This is the crisis of faith the people of Israel were experiencing. It's the same crisis of faith we all experience whenever we go through the dark valleys of life. We wonder if maybe, maybe God isn't really all that good and loving after all. Or maybe God isn't really that powerful. Why else would we have suffered as we have in the past? Why else would we be facing the tragedies we are today? How else can we explain our inner struggles with sin, doubt, guilt, fear, anger? Maybe God's not that great after all. I once heard an old preacher say, look at others and be distressed. Look at yourself and be depressed. But look to God and you'll be blessed. And that's what Israel needed to do. Rather than focus on their captors and be distressed, rather than look at their pitiful condition and be depressed, they needed to look at their Creator and their Redeemer and be blessed by His power and His love. And that's what we need to do. Rather than compare, comparing ourselves to others we see on Facebook, and, and by the way, for most people, I've, I've discovered on Facebook, they either are talking about nothing but how awesome their life is, and by comparison, yours looks pretty pitiful and lame, or they complain about everything, right? I mean, they just, everything is just a tragedy. As my daughter would say, oh, that's so tragic. You know, she, she does that very well. And so... That's Facebook. So don't compare yourselves to others. Don't feel hopeless that you can't change your situation. When the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. Or as Isaiah forty twenty six says, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? Because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So let's look together at Isaiah 40, and discover how God is greater than our struggles, our situations, and our shortcomings. First, we see that God is greater than our past struggles. God is greater than your past struggles. Look with me at Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the peoples are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. 
You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. When the remnant of Israel living in Babylon looked back at their past, there wasn't very much to be proud of. They saw their sin, their unfaithfulness, their failure, and the heavy hand of God's judgment. They needed encouraging. They needed comfort. Through the prophet, God gave them five comforting words. The first was a word of pardon there in the first couple of verses. Last week we heard all about the grievous sins of Israel and Judah, immorality and idolatry and injustice. They were neglecting the widows and the fatherless and the poor. Their leaders were corrupt and they had rejected God as their father and they no longer recognized His voice. Yet the Father still loved them. He disciplined them, yes. He put them through that refining fire of the exile. But God did not forsake them. In verse 2, when it says, speak tenderly, it means speak to their hearts. God wanted them to know in their hearts that their sentence of hard labor was completed and their sins were paid for. That God tells them that they had paid for double for all their sins. Now that might make it sound like that God was overly harsh with them, but what that's referring to is the Old Testament law that required that if you uh, sinned against someone and you needed to make restitution, you were supposed to make double the restitution. You might remember the story of when Jesus went to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he? I thought I'd get a, a laugh or something of that. I, he climbed up in a sycamore tree. You know that story. So... Zacchaeus invites Jesus, or Jesus actually invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus scrambles down, they go home, and Zacchaeus tells Jesus that because of, of, of his encounter with the Lord, he was going to return fourfold everything he had taken from those people that he had ripped off. And so that's that idea of, of making that restitution, and God is saying, you've done that. But listen to the perspective of the people after they have returned back to Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 9. They said, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. So God's saying, hey, you've paid double for your sins, but Israel's saying, God, you are so gracious and merciful, you have not punished us as much as we deserved. And indeed, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Psalm 103, 8-10 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That is the definition of mercy. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. John, 1 John 1, 9 goes on to say, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the definition of grace. God gives us what we do not deserve, and that is a second chance. Forgiveness. 
So it doesn't matter this morning what your past sins are. God offers you a word of pardon. Through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are paid for, washed away, forgiven. All you must do is receive it by putting your faith and trust in Him. Secondly, He comforts them with a word of providence in verses 3 through 5. They had lost everything. They had lost their land, their temple, their livelihoods, their national identity. And in order to return to these ruined homes and cities that they're then going to have to rebuild, it's not like when they went back to the promised land this time that everything was just gleaming and just waiting for them to come in and just, you know, like they had won, you know, some kind of a contest and had this beautiful mansion waiting for them. They were going back to a devastated, ruined land. And they would have to clear away the rubble. This past weekend, I was in uh, Gatlinburg for a Smoky Mountain Resort Ministry board retreat. And after the fire in Gatlinburg, people scattered. And I was talking to one man, just met him on the street. And, and anybody you met that lives in Gatlinburg, it doesn't take two or three minutes of conversation before they bring up the fire. And he was telling me how he had lost his house. And he wouldn't be able to rebuild because the insurance money just wasn't enough. And so a lot of these people will not be able to return home. And those who do, they're going to have to rebuild. They have to sift through the rubble and rebuild their lives. And that's what Judah was going to have to do. And whatever lives they've made for themselves in Babylon in the meantime, they're going to have to give that up in order to go home. And I think about when, when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, the same thing happened. You had people that left, and they were gone for so long that many of them, they, they built lives in other places, and they never came back. But Judah's going to have to leave behind so much in order to return home. The language here in, in verses 3 through 5 echoes the journey that Israel made through the wilderness when they were slaves in Egypt and they came to the promised land. And there God also provided for their needs, defended them from their enemies, made a highway through the desert for His people. And God is telling them, I'll do that again. I know that you're going to have to leave behind some things. I know that it's going to be hard when you get there to rebuild the land and rebuild Jerusalem but my hand of providence will be with you. It's fitting that these verses really find their ultimate meaning in John the Baptist. That John the Baptist would be the one who would come crying out in the desert, prepare the highway for our God. John came to prepare the way for Jesus, the ultimate expression of God's providential hand. God also comforted them with a word of promise in verses 6-8. through eight. He says that all people are like grass. You know, if you compare human, any civilization, whether it's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the British Empire, we're not an empire, but the United States of America, compared to world history, we're just a blip on the radar, aren't we? We're just a moment in the entire history of civilization and humanity. And so... Our lives are fragile, are they not? They're brief. And even the powerful kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon would not last forever. But the good news, the promise, is that God's Word does last forever. Why worry over what a king says when he'll be dead within the next 50 years? Why worry about the kingdoms of men who rise and fall within centuries when God's Word stands forever? 
Think of all the empires and all the tyrants and all the people that have tried to destroy and do away with and silence this book. Where are they today? And yet we have God's Word. And God's eternal Word is eternally trustworthy. The very fact that Jewish people were being allowed to return to Jerusalem was a fulfillment of God's earlier promises. And He made that promise to Solomon in 1 Kings 8. He made that promise to Moses in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. Time and again, God warned His people about the possibility of exile if they were unfaithful to Him, and He always promised a return home if they returned to God. You can count on God's promises. The truth of God's Word is greater than your past regrets, your present pressures, or your future worries. You can count on God's Word for comfort and hope. And then God gave them a comforting word of peace. Here we see the people of God climbing the mountain to declare the victory that God has given them and the deliverance that is theirs. God's Word of promise has come true and that's good news worth shouting from the mountaintops. This is the comforting truth to be proclaimed. Now Paul borrows from this language in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10 verses 13 through 17, listen to what... Paul says, he says, For everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the Word of Christ. When Isaiah and when Paul talk about bringing good tidings, bringing good news, that's literally what it means to share the gospel. When we talk about sharing the gospel... It literally means we are bringing good news, good tidings to people. And for us today, the good news that we have to share is the defeat of sin and Satan and death by Jesus Christ when He died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave victorious. And He brings that salvation to everyone who trusts in Him. Isn't that news that comforts? Isn't that news worth shouting from mountaintops? Amen. And we are sent out to declare to the world, here is your God. And He is a God whose arm is mighty in battle and powerful to save, but His arms are also gentle and loving, carrying us like a shepherd carries a lamb that is weary and tired and wounded. This is the comforting word of peace for us and for everyone that we meet. So God is greater than our past struggles. Secondly, we see that God is greater than our present circumstances. Listen in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Or with the breadth of His hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed Him as His counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales as he weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. 
Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. Now, Lebanon was known for its cedar trees, vast forests. So he's saying there's not enough trees in Lebanon for all the altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless, as less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects woods that will not rot, meaning he can't afford the stone and the metal, so he's looking for a good wood that won't rot away. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its peoples are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than He blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? Because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Here the prophet is addressing the people's doubts about the greatness of God. I mean, yeah, God was greater than the Assyrians, right? I mean, they burned much of Judah. They took away Israel. But God's people were still here, and Assyria has been overthrown by the Babylonians. So yeah, God was greater than Assyria. And while Babylon did burn Jerusalem and take them all captive, the Persians have now risen up and overthrown the Babylonians. And that's why God is now returning His people home. The Persians are saying, go home. So God, yes, He's greater than our past struggles. But what about our present circumstances. As we've said, the children of Israel still had a rough road ahead of them. Is God still more powerful than the kingdoms of men and their pagan and man-made idols? Can they trust in the days to come that God will be faithful to protect them and provide for them? So the prophet is reminding them once again that God is greater than our past struggles and our present circumstances. When we open our eyes to behold the greatness of God, everything else around us falls into perspective. And we can see that God can provide, first of all, for our physical circumstances. The prophet says God is greater than anything on earth. He says, look at all of creation. Look at all the grandeur of nature. Look at the vastness of the cosmos. Look at the intricacies of the cell or the atom. Look at the wisdom of the wisest men and women you would ever know. All of this came from the mind and the hand of God. He is greater than creation. He is greater than the nations. There is truly no one like our God. He stands alone. There is no equal. In Isaiah chapter 45, he says this in verses 11 and 12. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. 
And then verse 13 goes on to explain how even the good king Cyrus, the king of the Persians, who's responsible for letting Israel go free and return to Jerusalem, even he is obeying God's commands. Jesus picks up and continues this thought in the Sermon on the Mount. You might remember Jesus warns us against needless worrying over our basic needs. And he says, if God could create the birds of the air and make sure they have nests, if God could create the lilies of the field and make sure that they are, they are robed in beauty, how much more will God take care of us, His children made in His own image? And Jesus says, don't run after food and clothes and shelter like pagans do because your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. It's about whether or not we trust that God is greater than our physical circumstances. And I'm here to tell us that God can help us no matter what your physical circumstances. He sees your need. He knows your need. He owns the, thaddle, the cattle on a thousand hills. He can supply your needs. Can I get an amen for that? Do you believe that? Okay. You're awake. Good. I guess. But He can also meet our spiritual needs. He's greater than our spiritual circumstances. You know, we're, we're more than just animals with these biological compulsions that have to be satisfied. These physical needs like food and water and air that have to be met just to keep our heart pumping. We're more than that. Now, there's a growing worldview today that sees us as nothing more than higher evolved animals, and that's all we are. And there are people that will tell you that you have no soul, that there is no afterlife, that this is all there is. And once you die, that's it. It's over. But that's just not true. We are physical and spiritual beings. We do bear the image of God. And just as we tend to chase after our physical needs like pagans, you know, as if everything depends upon us, as if we, God isn't the owner of cattle on a thousand hills. I don't know why that's so hard for me to say. You know, when we live life that way, sure we're chasing after those things like pagans because we're not trusting in God. But you know, we tend to do that with our spiritual needs as well. We rely on our own wisdom and insights and efforts. And that's essentially what idolatry and religiousness are. They are human attempts to make ourselves right with God. It's me trying to fill the spiritual void in me that only God can fill with other things. It's me trying to find purpose, meaning, and hope on my own. That's idolatry. And, and the prophet says that God is greater than man-made idols who don't even have the power to keep themselves from rotting away, who don't even have the power to keep themselves standing on their own two feet. But our God keeps the stars from going missing. Our God is greater than the kings and the nations or the diseases or the hard financial times or, or the uncertainties that might threaten our safety, security, and freedoms. To God, they are like grasshoppers. They're like dust on the scales. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 147. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of the stars and calls them each by name. If we want to find meaning and purpose, why not turn to the Creator God who calls every star by name and also knows your name? 
Why not turn to the Creator of the stars who's also the healer of broken hearts? That is the God that we serve. Someone has defined circumstances as those nasty things you see when you take your eyes off God. I like that. Because if we look at God through our circumstances, He seems distant and small. But if we can learn to look at our circumstances by faith through God, we realize that God is bigger than any giant, any Goliath that we might face. He is greater than our current circumstances. And number three, God is greater than our personal shortcomings. Let's finish this chapter, beginning in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So the Jewish people in Babylon had been complaining. They'd been complaining that God didn't see them, didn't care about their problems. Instead of seeing how God had opened the prison doors to set them free, they only saw the long road ahead of them. And so they complained. They didn't have strength for the journey. They didn't have the strength or the resources to make this trek and to rebuild Jerusalem. God was asking them to do the impossible. When my daughter first got her bicycle, she was uh, sort of excited at getting the bicycle. She woke up, and there it was one Christmas morning. And we went out there uh, for her to ride it, and she was so excited and eager, and she jumped up on it and just took off on it, and she turned it like this, and down she went. And there I was standing there like a dummy, you know, I should have been holding on to her. And so she kind of got freaked out and it took her a while to kind of work up the courage to get back on her bicycle because she felt like that she couldn't do it. And really it was daddy's fault. She felt like that she just wasn't good enough, strong enough, old enough, whatever. But as her dad, my job was to help her to learn, to build up her confidence, to help her appreciate and enjoy her gift. And in a similar way, our Father in Heaven knows our fears. He knows our weaknesses. He understands how we feel. And He is there to meet our needs. We can find comfort in knowing that the Lord cares. In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 16, the prophet says this, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And here's a much better analogy than a dad with his daughter's bike. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. And your walls, meaning these broken, ruined walls of Jerusalem, are ever before me. The Creator of the stars knows your problems. The God who bears your names 
in the palms of His hands, in the nail scars that held Him on that cross, can He not bear whatever it is that you are struggling with and facing today? As Isaiah 53 says, by His wounds we are healed. No matter your circumstances, no matter your inner struggles, I pray you find comfort in the knowledge that God does see, does see your situation. He does hear your cries and He does care. We can find comfort in knowing that God cares. And we can find renewed strength in waiting for the Lord in hope. Because this same God who sees and cares, He's not just a God who can kind of stand up and, and empathize with us and feel sorry for us. He's a God who can do something about it. He can strengthen us even in the midst of trials so severe that the youngest and strongest among us are exhausted. He can give you strength. I know in the stresses of life, you may feel like the rat race never ends. The chores never go away. There's always dirty dishes in the sink, right? The grass always needs to be mowed. The demands on your time and your attention seem relentless. Don't despair. Even youths grow tired and weary. Even young men will stumble and fall. And then if you add to those daily chore lists and those daily demands that you have to meet and the bills you have to pay, add to that the daily call to Christ to go and make disciples, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. Woo! <laughs> Right? I mean, are you feeling overwhelmed yet? When it comes to living up to life's demands and God's commands, we are inadequate. You can never obey God and be all He wants you to be in your own strength. But we can always trust Him to provide for us the strength we need. As Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. If we trust ourselves, yes, we're going to faint and we're going to fall. But if we wait on the Lord by faith, He will give us strength for what lies ahead. Some translations in verse 31 say, wait, those who wait on the Lord. Other translations like the NIV say, those who hope in the Lord. And that's because the Hebrew word here means to wait with hopeful expectation. It's not waiting like you're sitting waiting for your oil to get changed at the car dealership and it takes an hour and and the view is on TV, and you're pulling your hair out, right? I mean, it's, it's not that kind of waiting. I don't know. If you like to watch the view, I'm sorry for you. Um, it's waiting with holy expectation. It's waiting on the Lord as we meditate on His character and His promises. We pray and seek to glorify Him as we wait for God to act. And when we place our hope in God, we will find a renewed strength that we never knew was possible. That word renew will renew our strength. That word means to exchange. It's like we take off these old clothes and we put on fresh ones. We are exchanging our weakness for His strength. As Paul said in our New Testament reading, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong because I've exchanged my weakness for His strength. As we wait on the Lord, as you wait on the Lord, He will enable you to soar over the crises in your life. 
to run when the challenges overwhelm you, to walk faithfully day to day in the demands of life. And really when you think of it, you know, I've always read that verse and thought, man, shouldn't that be the opposite? Shouldn't it be walk and not grow weary, run and not faint, soar like eagles? You know, that's just kind of what you think about. But really, isn't it more important? Isn't it a greater strength to be able to walk consistently through your daily life, day after day after day, right? I mean, the daily pressures of life are daily The moments of crisis that we can soar over are sporadic. William Carey, the father of modern missions, said, I can plod. P-L-O-D. I can plod. That's my only genius. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. And what Carey was saying is that the greatest heroes of the faith are not always those who seem to be soaring. Often it's those who are patiently plodding. Maybe you feel like that's you today. But when you wait on the Lord, He will not only enable you to fly higher and run faster, He will enable you to walk longer, to patiently plod. Blessed are the plotters, for eventually they arrive at their destination. God knew Israel's situation. He was not distant or uncaring. He was purposeful and loving in His discipline. God knew about their past struggles and He forgave them. He gave them a fresh start. He opened the prison doors so they could return home. God knew the circumstances they would face on that long road home. So God built a highway and led the way for them to return home. He would meet their physical and spiritual needs. And God knew their weaknesses. He understood their exhaustion. And so God gave them strength to overcome their personal shortcomings. He would help them endure the long journey. This morning God wants to offer you forgiveness for your past struggles with sin and guilt with regret or shame, with anger or fear. God also wants you to trust Him to provide for your needs today, to believe that He is greater than whatever circumstance you may face today. God wants you to find rest and strength and joy and purpose in Him. He is greater than your greatest personal shortcomings, and we all have them. Amen? I know I have plenty. He can help you overcome bad habits. He can help the hurts of your heart. He can give you a fresh start and renewed strength if you will come and trust in Him today. Do this with me this morning. Just hold your hands out in front of you for a second. They're empty. You're releasing your past. You're letting go of what you're striving over today. Your personal inner struggles... The burdens that you carry, you're opening them up and asking God to exchange His strength for each and every one of them. Take a deep breath with me. Breathe in. Breathe out. God wants to fill you with His Spirit. But first you have to empty yourself of yourself. Would you do that this morning? As God is leading you and speaking to you, maybe as we sing, just where you're standing, you just open your hands and take some deep breaths. And you let it all go to God and receive His comfort. Receive His strength. Receive His peace. If God is leading you to come down and make a public decision for Christ or to join this church, you come. I'll be standing here waiting for you. Let us stand and sing together.